Okay, so welcome to Christian Life Academy. We are just hurtling through, today is part uh, 18 or 19, of chapter 2 of the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689, which is our doctrinal statement of faith. We're working our way through it and have been for a number of years because we're basically learning about doctrine. And, um, you know, if you uh, were new to this class and there's only like a couple of you that are fairly newer to the class, and I say newer, and I mean the last year or two. <laughs> um, you know that we're covering a lot of things that we don't uh, that don't get covered a lot. I mean, maybe you've heard about the doctrines, you know about the doctrine a little bit, but you don't see them preached all the time. And um, uh, that's why we're doing this class because we're learning about these doctrines and trying to understand them better so that we can have the a good understanding of our faith. And um, there's lots of scriptural examples that tell us why we should study this, but the best example is just basically so that we're not swayed by false religions. And uh, we're actually going to get into that still in this chapter a little bit. Uh, we really are going to finish paragraph 2 as we're working through chapter 2 of God and the Holy Trinity. Uh, we're going to finish paragraph 2, then we're going to move to paragraph 3 today. And paragraph 3, uh, fittingly enough, is about the Trinity. I don't know if they planned it that way or not, but paragraph three is about the Trinity. So we're going to get into that today. We probably won't finish it today. i got way too many slides about it. Um, probably that will be next week. And I think that the stuff on the Trinity is fantastic. It's stuff that people have a difficult time with. Um, I just heard this week about someone that has a son who's having a difficult time with the Trinity. And um, that's good fitting because that's, we're going to be talking about it. And uh, we're going to talk about some of these uh, the objections to the Trinity and uh, how we deal with those objections and that kind of thing. Uh, But let's not get ahead of ourselves. We're still in paragraph two. So where we were uh, last week was we left off with this part right here. So again, in chapter, paragraph two is the relations of God to his creatures. And then we were talking about his sovereign dominion over them. We started on this right here, but I'm just going to go read it again. So paragraph two And he hath most sovereign dominion over all creatures to do by them, for them, or upon them whatsoever himself pleases. Or what, yeah, whatsoever himself pleases. So, obviously, I think we talked about this already. God has the right to do whatever he wants to for or on his creation as sovereign king and lord or over all creation. He has in his authority complete jurisdiction and dominion. So God does not need permission to do something to his creation. He can do whatever he wants. That seems like when we think in terms of the concept, like we look at this statement, and it seems, of course, right? Well, of course, he would have dominion over his creation. He, he is the one who created it. He is God. And yet, we question this all the time. Why is this happening? Why did that happen? Why did I get a flat tire? Why did the roof start leaking? Why did they talk to me that way? Why aren't things going the way that they should go? Anybody else do this? No one else does this ever? Yes, of course you do all the time. And this is the problem. We're forgetting this. We're forgetting this. Look, here's the bottom line. Something bad happens. You know what you can say assuredly? God allowed that to happen. What you can't say assuredly is why. Right? You 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 don't know why. You don't know why. You can say, well... I think it's because, you know, this could have happened if that wouldn't have happened, or this did happen as a result of that happening, and that could be true. That could be why. There could also be a lot more to it than that. Have you ever seen that maybe something happens, and you think the most obvious reason that it happened, you know, you understand, but then somehow later, subtly, there's something else that came out of that? 
right? Have you ever had that happen? You know, you talk to somebody, man, I remember when you went through that and I was really inspired by the way. You never, they never said nothing to you when you were going through some situation or struggle, but that actually inspired somebody else to watch you. We don't think about those things. Those things happen all the time. They happen all the time. If you have kids, only one, two, three, four, five people don't have kids. Wasn't sure. Barb, you have, yeah, you have kids. So, uh, look, if you have kids, you know this is true all the time, right? Like, you do things, and then you see them actually emulate that later, right? And sometimes, hopefully, when something bad happens, when you handle a situation, whether it's somebody gets injured, or something happens financially, or something, whatever, right? The way you handle that Sometimes you actually see that in your kids. And you didn't even teach them that. But they watched. They observed. They learned. And then that's how they deal with the issue, right? That's the hope. Well, the hope is, is that you handle it the right way so that they in turn handle it the right way. Sometimes that doesn't go that way. <laughs> anyway, so it's not surprising that God would do things that we would not understand, that we wouldn't fully grasp. But it's not a, the, the point is, is that we have to be careful that we're not questioning him. He has complete jurisdiction and authority to do whatever he wants. Agreed? Complete jurisdiction and authority. Why? He's God. That's enough. Second, he's the creator God. He created us. Another reason he has the complete authority to do whatever he wants to and dominion to do whatever he wants to. So you see something you don't like? Don't blame it on God, but accept that that's his will. Why? Because if it wasn't his will, he would do it a different way. Now, that's hard to swallow, believe me. But this is part of Christian sanctification. We're to become more mature, and that's part of the maturation process. We should be learning to accept the way things are because God has made them the way that they are. And you say, well, surely God didn't put Joe Biden in office. Yes, he did. How about Gretchen Whitmer? Yes, he did. He did. Yeah, but they're not any good. Well, wait a minute. So you're saying that you know better what we need than God? No. Of course not. Yeah, but things would have been so much better if Trump would have been reelected instead of Biden. Arguably true, in my opinion. But it doesn't matter. Because that's not the way God intended it to go. Right? God intended it for another reason. What are all the reasons? We don't know. There's probably a whole lot of reasons. We don't know. All we have to do is be content that God is in charge, he's in control, and he has the dominion and the authority to do whatever he wants to. God's choice of who has received election is one example of his lawful right to do as he pleases to whom he pleases. So we say, well, why is it that God only chooses some to be elect? Only some will be saved. Now, how do we know that this is the case? Well, we know it from a ton of scriptures. It's like almost hard to get around this in scripture. But here's the simple truth. The scriptures are very clear. If you look at the Order Salutis poster back there, you can see this as well. The reason that someone would repent and become a believer is because the Holy Spirit quickens them. The Bible uses the term quickens them. What does it mean to quicken? It means to make them alive. Talked about, Paul talks about this. We see this in a number of places. Men have hearts of stone. 
They are dead in their trespasses and sin. A dead man cannot revive himself. It takes the Holy Spirit to turn the heart of stone into the heart of flesh. How do we know that's the case? Because the Bible directly tells us that. Once the heart becomes flesh, immediately the heart feels guilty, repents from its sins, recognizes Jesus Christ, and believes on him. That's what happens. So who is the one that turns the heart from stone to flesh? Is it man himself, or is it the Holy Spirit? Well, the Bible's clear about this. There's not a mystery here. We don't have to try to wonder about this. It's the Holy Spirit. The only thing that can turn your heart of stone into a heart of flesh is the Holy Spirit. So, does the Holy Spirit turn every heart of stone into a heart of flesh? Of course not. First of all, you know this just from anecdotal evidence, don't you? You know people who never get saved. They reject the gospel, right? They do not get saved. Their heart has not turned to flesh. If it had, they would repent. How do we know this? The Bible tells us this very clearly. This is not some obscure truth. It's listed in the scriptures over and over and over again. What is obscure is trying to find a way to say that's not true and to think we have more control. Let me ask you this. Is it possible that the Creator God, the guy we're talking about right here, even guy sounds a little bit disrespectful, God, who has dominion over all things, that the only thing not under his control is man's ability to choose salvation? Everything else he controls, but that he doesn't? Of course it's impossible. So if he wants somebody to be saved, they can't be saved? Because he doesn't have any control over that? Makes no sense. What God is he? We've talked about this before as we've talked about God. If there's anything that God cannot do, he's not God. He's not God. It's pretty much that simple. Let's look at some verses. Daniel 4, 25 that they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and they shall wet thee with the dew of the heaven, and seven times shalt thou, shall seven times shall pass over thee, till thou knowest the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. Who is this? Who is God talking to? Nebuchadnezzar. So then let's go to Daniel 4, 34 and 35. And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, there's the, I see I had to ask you before I read the verse, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, and mine understanding returned unto me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? So Nebuchadnezzar, the greatest king of his time, is humbled, lives like an oxen, eats grass, to teach him a lesson. He learned the lesson. How do we know this? Verse 25 tells us that this is going to happen until you recognize who the Most High is. And then Nebuchadnezzar does realize this. He comes to his senses. He recognizes it and proclaims it. That's what we see here. 
Nebuchadnezzar got it. He got it. Hard lesson, right? We would be best to learn it without that hard of a lesson. Would you agree? Nobody wants to be Nebuchadnezzar. All right, Psalm 115.3, But our God is in the heavens, he that he hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. Very clear. Psalm 135.6, Whatsoever the Lord pleased, that he did, that did he, in heaven and in earth, in the seas and all deep places. So again, we're just seeing this concept. What is it? That God does what he wants to do. Proverbs 21.1, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, as the rivers of water he turneth it whithersoever he will. God controls the kings. Ephesians 1.5, Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of our will. That's not what it says. It says, according to the good pleasure of his will. It is not man that makes the decision for salvation. It is God. It is God. Now that flies in the face of free will, doesn't it? It does. Doesn't make it less true. The really the truth of the matter is, is that as you read through the scripture, whenever you come across a verse you think that indicates free will, read the rest of the passage. John three sixteen, perfect example. John three sixteen. Read the whole chapter. See what you find out. The context. But notice, and this is the truth, God made a promise. We know this in his word. We talk about this when we talk about the chapter of salvation. And what is that? If anyone believes and repents, they will be saved. The problem is it's impossible to do so unless their heart is turned from stone to flesh. But if someone was able to overcome that, they could. But they can't. Why? That would be outside God's control. It would be outside his will. So is it possible then truly? No. Can't happen. Can't happen. Why? Not God's will. Is there anything that can happen that's outside God's will? Is there anything that can happen that he isn't in control over? No. You know, when we look at prophecy, whether it's eschatology, end times, that's the study of end times, whether it's that or whether it's even prophecy from the Old Testament that we see fulfilled in the Old Testament, right? There's a lot of that, where there's prophecy made, and then that prophecy ends up being fulfilled. Sometimes it's very soon. Some of the prophets happens very soon. Other times it's years, hundreds of years later, that the prophecy comes true, right? As we see that, we have to recognize that in order for that prophecy to have been fulfilled, there is an unbelievable amount of circumstances that all had to work together to get to that prophecy being fulfilled. Who remembers, beside Brantz and Paul, because I know they'll come up with the answer immediately, but who remembers what justification was used to convince the king of Syria, or of Assyria, of Persia, to allow the people to return to Jerusalem, and rebuild the wall. What was it? Does anybody remember? All right, open up to you guys. What was it? What was the argument? Do you remember? 
say God would be beneficial for them. They believe in the same But the argument was not that. The argument was made, it was that, but the argument was because of the law. It was because of the law. Now this is very interesting. In other words, there was a law that said that it would be beneficial to allow the people to worship their own gods because that would make them less subject to being bad slaves, bad conquered people. You with me on this? Well, the king was completely dependent on the law. He followed the law. In fact, this is why you see some of these places where the king is actually really upset. You think, was the remember this, was the king happy to throw Daniel in the lion's den? He wasn't. But he did it. Why? Because it was the law. And he was forced to follow the law. Who taught them to follow the law, that concept. No. The Persians. The Persians. Have you ever heard the statement, the law of the Medes and the Persians? The Persians were the ones that embraced the law as supreme and recognized that if the law was consistent, it was fairer for everybody. So they had this unbelievable belief that the law was correct. So when you get to Xerxes and Artaxerxes, they continued to follow this. Who taught the Persians that the law was the best way to conduct themselves? Do you remember this? Daniel. Remember Daniel survived two empires? He was an advisor in two empires. He was the one that taught the Persians that the law had to be supreme. They translated that to Babylon, to the next kingdom, and that kingdom embraced it. Daniel's teaching actually is the thing that led to the Israelites going back to their home. Think about that. And we're not even talking about how Daniel got to that position. Remember all that? Eating the corn, not eating the meat, king's meat. Remember all that? Eating the pulse. Remember that? And that's not even talking about the wisdom that Daniel had, which certainly seems clearly like it was a gift from God, and the faithfulness that Daniel had even in the face of death. All those things, one example, that's one example. All these things that have to line up in order for God's will to be accomplished because he told his servant to prophesy. They prophesied they were going to return home and they returned home exactly the year that he said they would return home. Lots of parts and pieces had to happen. Think about all the people that God had to have them do something in order for that to come about, for that finally to happen. It's unbelievable. And that's just something we know something about. There's so many things that we don't know about, isn't there, in our own lives, right? Things that happen or don't happen that influence you through other people that something happened, like if you had a job. Some do, some don't. You have a business. How did you get there? How did that happen? A whole lot of things had to happen for you to get that work, to get to that point. Did you just do it all on your own? No, you didn't. First of all, no one can be in business without clients. Right? You have to, and Tom's like, yeah, unfortunately. It would be easy if we didn't have clients. <laughs> you, right? So there's a lot of people that actually helped you get that business. 
right? They, they can't go to market and sell at the market unless people buy at the market. They need customers. They can like set up their whole thing in their backyard and here we go, and then they're not gonna make any money because no one's gonna be there to sell it to buy anything, right? Well, maybe the neighbor. But besides that, you understand what I'm saying? There's all these people, there's all these things that happen that come together for God's will to be done in the way that it's done. So what should we do? We should be content. We should accept that the way that God wants things to happen is the way that God wants things to happen. We have a hard time the harder the thing is. You're like, that seems like a pretty simple statement, Brian. It's, it is a simple statement. But here's the thing. We have a hard time when it's harder, like when we talk about somebody and salvation and somebody not getting saved that we love or not living for God that we love. And that's hard. We really have a harder time accepting that. Don't we? But guess what? God's will also. Because he could bring them closer if he chose. Could he not? And maybe he will. And maybe he won't. We don't know. We can pray. He tells us to pray. We can ask for his help. We should do our part to counsel them, to love on them, to do whatever we need to do with them. But in the end, it's in God's hands. It's not in yours. Feel relieved. Someone you love is not saved. That's not your fault. Do your part. Then it's up to God. You cannot save them. You cannot drag them to the cross. It doesn't happen. You can't. Can you change their heart from stone to flesh? No. Can't do it. You think Barb wouldn't like her mom to not have a problem with dementia? Can Barb make her mom not have a problem with dementia? No. That's in God's hands. Why? We don't know. We don't know. So what can we do? We can pray and we can be content. Because that's what he tells us to do. Pray and be content. As soon as you stop being content, you, that's when you start thinking sinful things. This is what draws you away from God, not closer to God. Let the anguish of concern you feel for somebody draw you closer to God and more dependent on Him for His mercy and grace in your life and less re like reactive to God that if He can't do this, I don't want nothing to do with Him. This is important. He's sovereign. He's God. It's the way it is. His absolute knowledge of them. So here's the paragraph continues. In his sight, all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature, so as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain. Now this is referring to the concept that God is omniscient. There are no thoughts hidden from him. He knows everything. It's not like God just has surveillance cameras everywhere and he sees what's happening. No, it's way more than that. He knows your thought all the time. It's not what he tunes to your channel. That's sobering. He knows your thoughts all the time. So right now, some of you are thinking, he could have chose a better time. God knows you're thinking that. Don't think about that. Think about this. 
God's knowledge is never incomplete or wrong. It will never somehow it is it is never somehow controlled by creation. He sees all, knows what it what is, has and will happen. There's not something that God doesn't understand or doesn't see or doesn't know. It's not like us. We can't think about it in that terms because God is omniscient. It is almost incomprehensible to us. He knows everything. He knows what your dog is doing at home right now. You don't, unless you call it Furbo. But he knows what your he knows what your dog is thinking. And our dog is thinking, I wish they'd come home and throw the ball. That's what our, I think. I'm not sure. I think that's what our dog's thinking. But you understand that his knowledge is complete, totally complete. You ever think about that? He knows what the deer thinks. And unfortunately, sometimes the deer thinks to stay away from Stu. Not that it's good. Stu wants that deer to come a little closer. But God knows what the deer is thinking. And by the way, this isn't comfortable, but it is what it is. God can send the deer towards Stu when he's hunting. Or he can keep him away. And in the end, it's his will, isn't it? So Stu can either be all upset or mad about that, or he can be content. That's the way it is. He hopes God blesses him by bringing that big 12-point buck in front of him, but he might not. True? <laughs> I've heard. Out west, maybe, I don't know. Man has no control over the flow of information to God. We do not reveal anything to him. Now, I want you to think about that in terms of prayer for just a second. We're going to read the verses. But in terms of prayer for just a second, because the Bible tells us that the Spirit sometimes will pray for us without us making an utterance. Now, what does that mean? That means that there are sometimes especially in extreme circumstances. Now, what do I mean by extreme? Well, I don't mean like you're falling from an airplane without a parachute, although that would be one. I mean like when something is so overwhelming and you're caught up in it that you forget to pray. You see what I'm saying? Maybe it's grief. Maybe it's being upset. Maybe it's panic. You see what I'm saying? In these cases, the Spirit can actually convey your thoughts to the Father, through Christ, in your stead. Now the scripture tells us this, right? And the reality is, is God, the Holy Spirit, knows what your thoughts are. God knows what your thoughts are. Right? So that split second that you lose control of your car and you're sliding into an accident, God knows what you're thinking at that point, and he can respond to your thoughts as prayers. Really? Yeah. Sure. He knows what you're thinking. He knows what you're thinking. That's why we should be careful what we're thinking, isn't it? Let's look at a few verses. Hebrews 4.13. Hebrews 4.13. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Ezekiel 11.5 And the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me and said unto me, Speak, thus saith the Lord, thus have ye said, O house of Israel, for I know the things that come into your mind, every one of them. 
Acts 15, 18. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. He knows all. Omniscient. He knows all. Yeah, but wasn't there a period when God was on vacation? No, from the beginning of the world. Just thought maybe you'd throw that question out there. I wanted to give you the answer. All right. Paragraph continues. He is most holy in all his counsels, in all his works, and in all his commands. Well, this seems pretty clear, again, because he is God, but we're just restating it here in the confession. God is morally perfect in everything he decides and does. All his commands are without question holy and just. To question them is to place our judgment on par with God. Kind of said this already. Would you agree? We've kind of said this already. But we just need to remember that this is the point right here. He's morally perfect in everything he decides and does. If you say, well, I can't believe that this happened, that God would allow this to happen. Careful. Because now you're questioning God. You're actually putting yourselves on par with God. You're saying, I can also judge what should have happened here, and that shouldn't have gone the way that it went. That's blasphemy. You're saying you're God. You're putting yourself at God's level. Don't do that. Psalm 145, 17. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. Pretty clear. Do you agree? All right. End of the chapter. I'm sorry, paragraph. To him is due from angels and men whatsoever worship, service, or obedience as creatures they owe unto the Creator, and whatever he is further pleased to require of them. So first of all, let's understand this word intrinsic is true, general, or essential. We call this his intrinsic claims upon them. It's true, genuine, or essential. Both men and angels must do whatever God says they should do. He is their creator and sovereign. And if they don't, what happens? Punishment. Damnation. That's what happens. They must do what he says. If they do not, they are sinners. They will be punished. If it wasn't for the work of Jesus Christ. God is our creator and is most holy. He is to be worshipped, served, and obeyed by all of creation. Revelation 5, 12-14. Saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth And such as are in the sea, and all that are in them, heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the forty and four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. So it's a picture of what's happening at the throne, and you can see what's going to happen. Every single creature that exists is going to recognize God in his authority. It doesn't matter what state they're in or where they're at. If they're in hell, they're in heaven, they're on earth, they will recognize God. They will claim who he is. So the most ardent atheist you know is going to acknowledge God. 
At that point, it'll be to his doom. It'll be too late. In his doom, I should say. Okay. So that is the end of paragraph two, which is the relation of God to his creature. So now we move to paragraph three, and it is the triunity of God, or in other words, the doctrine of the Trinity. So the word Trinity literally means three in unity. So is God the only thing that is a Trinity? No. Three in unity is a Trinity, right? So you can have other things that are a Trinity. Let's say that you had um, three people in a business, all equally running the business. You could call that a trinity. Now, most of us would not do that. Why? Because we tend to hold that word in reverence as a reference to God. You see what I'm saying? But accurately and historically, it has been used for more than God. It just means three things in unity. Now, we believe that in the being of the one true God, there are three distinct persons, all equal in power and glory, they're unique in their individual distinctions, but each one is truly and fully God. Now, we're going to break this down, because the doctrine of the Trinity is not super, super easy. It is super easy for you to just accept that it's the way it is. But if you want to flesh this out logically, you're going to have a hard time. Why? I'm glad you asked. We're going to get to that. This doctrine is and must remain to some extent a divine mystery. Is this the only thing that's a divine mystery? We've talked about a few. It's not the only thing. A divine mystery means something that is true, that, well, particularly of God, but also true of more than God, but there are things that God knows that we don't know. We don't know. They're divine mysteries. The creeds of the church written to specify what the scriptures say regarding the Trinity were not meant to explain the mystery of the doctrine. So you think of the uh, particularly the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, which we've read, those creeds talk specifically about the Trinity. They're not the only ones, but they talk specifically about the Trinity in detail. Why? Well, they were dealing with heresies, both of them with Arianism, which is a affront to the doctrine of the Trinity, teaching that Jesus was not the same as God. He was a God, not the God. The incomprehensibility of God means that some things of the doctrines of the faith will involve holy mysteries which are beyond our reason and contradict our human wisdom. That's just the way that it is. Psalm 131, verse 1. My heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty, neither do I exercise myself in great matters or in things too high for me. Why? Because they're higher than me. So, in other words, there are some things that we don't focus on because they're more than we can understand. They're higher. Now, we talked about one recently. I'll just bring it up here again. And it's this concept of dual realities existing simultaneously. Now, do dual realities exist? Now, we're not talking about the fictional multiverse that you see in a lot of movies popular lately. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the reality of the metaphysical and the physical. You exist in a metaphysical and a physical world. Now, what are we talking about? Well, physical is the physical world, right? It's the thing you can touch, you can see, you can taste, you can hear. You're looking at it. This is we're in the physical world. Metaphysical is spiritual. Metaphysical isn't a bad word. It's just a comparison. 
You can say spiritual and physical. That's okay. Or you can say metaphysical and physical. That's a term that more lost people understand, metaphysical. But those realities of metaphysical and physical are not both visible. Physical is. Metaphysical isn't. Can you see my spirit? Can I see your spirits? No, you can't. You might be able to see some evidence of my spirit in my physical actions, like words that I say, things that I do, right? But you can't see the spirit. Can you see angels? No, you cannot. They exist in a different reality than ours. They exist in the metaphysical only. They have no physical. They are only metaphysical. They are spirits, and you cannot see them. Where is heaven? Good question. It exists in a different realm. You're not going to find it with a telescope. You're not going to find it with a, a radar detector in the ground, or a radar detector, a radar into the ground or something like that. You're not going to find heaven. Where is hell? Same rule. You're not going to find it. Why? It is a place of physical reality, I mean, a metaphysical reality. It will become, the lake of fire will become a physical reality where the bodies of believers, I'm sorry, will be going to heaven and unbelievers will go to the lake of fire. It will be physical. It will be physical. Well, what about the angels that are bound and right now that are in hell? Yes, they are in the temporary hell. They're not in the lake of fire. The lake of fire is coming. Not yet. Well, where is the lake of fire? We don't know. We don't know. So is it possible that standing right here, if your eyes were opened, you would see heaven? Stephen did. Remember? God opened his eyes and he saw the throne. In Israel, it's not because it was across the river. I mean, he saw it, and it was in a different plane of existence. Are you with me on this? Do we see angels? No. Have men seen angels? Yes. When they made an appearance in a physical form. Physical form. They took on a physical form. How often do they do that? We don't know. But we do know that sometimes they are around us as strangers. That's sobering also, isn't it? Angels. Do animals always see angels? There's great suspicion. But notice that we, we specifically have a biblical example of a donkey seeing an angel. Right? Does God sometimes open someone's eyes to see things to reveal to them angels? Well, we know from his word that he does. How often does he do it outside his word? We don't know. Why don't we know? Because he didn't tell us. And if we needed to know, he would tell us. So if someone says, I saw an angel, did they see an angel? You're not sure. But if they said, he told me there was this new piece of information we needed to know, no, they didn't. No, they didn't. They've got to be careful. So when the Aka Indians said, that they saw what essentially were angels coming down to escort Nate Saint and the other missionaries that they had just killed, taking their spirits up into the sky. Did they see angels? Probably. Probably. 
the reality is, is that there are things like that that we cannot fully comprehend. What would it take for us to see those things? Supernatural intervention. That's what it takes. It's not a trick in our eyes. It's not you got to wear special glasses. It's nothing like that. It's that it's in God's control. And it's a mystery to us as to what, when does that occur? Why does that occur the way that it does? It's a mystery. The concept that there are three persons in the Trinity is a mystery. It's a mystery. It's true because the Bible teaches us this, and we're going to look at it. But how does this work? We can't know that. Just like we can't fully get around the, get our minds wrapped around the idea that God is omniscient and knows everything, every thought, everything that's happening continuously around the world. We can't come up with getting our arms around it because it's impossible for us to understand the ability to process that amount of information. Right? In our, no matter what you can think of in our human existence, you cannot think of how somebody or something could process all the thoughts of everyone in the world continuously. can't. How does God do it? Divine mystery. Good question. We can't know it. This paragraph is actually a combination of the First London Baptist Confession, the Westminster Confession, and the Savoy Declaration. It is more detailed than any of them. So I've said in the beginning here, and I said it through the other chapters and when we were working through the end, but there are a number of places where the Second London Baptist Confession differs from the Westminster. It was largely a modification to the Westminster, adding in some Savoy Declaration, who was that Congregationalist, you could think Puritans, but it was a combination of those things into the Second London Baptist Confession. And I always try to point out to you whenever there is a difference between the two, and this is one. This paragraph in the Second London Baptist Confession is much more full than the other confessions. It is a better paragraph than the other confessions because it explains more about the Trinity. All right, so here's the paragraph. In this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences, the Father, the Word or Son, and Holy Spirit. Of one substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son, all infinite, without beginning, therefore but one God, who is not to be divided in nature and being, but distinguished by several particular relative properties and personal relations." which doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of our communion with God and comfortable dependence on Him. Now, if we just accept the concept that, you know, like, holy, 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 God in three persons, blessed Trinity, right? You could just accept that and say, yep, there's three persons in the Trinity, and okay. But if you start thinking about that, or if you face somebody who challenges you on that, you better understand this stuff. And if you've never been challenged on the Trinity, some of you, you've probably been challenged on the Trinity, you didn't even realize it. 
Mormons don't believe in the Trinity. If you ever talk to a Mormon about Jesus, they do not believe in the Trinity. Jehovah's Witness do not believe in the Trinity. There are many others who do not believe in the Trinity. Feminists do not believe in the Trinity. They have a big problem with the Trinity. We'll talk about that they got a, next week. they got a big problem with the Trinity. We need to understand why we believe in the Trinity and how it works, at least as far as Scripture can tell us how it works. Because when we lose sight of that, we, lose, we have a problem with our faith. The, the great creeds that we see through our faith, whether it's the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, many other creeds, almost every one of them was needed to specify and clarify the doctrine of the Trinity. Notice the Apostles' Creed does not leave out all three persons of God. They're all in there. They're all there. Now you see examples in the New Testament of the gospel being proclaimed in various places without explaining the Trinity. In the broader term of what is the gospel, if we consider the gospel to be all of Scripture, of course it's there. But if we narrow our definition of the gospel to Christ, usually the Holy Spirit's not there. Not explained. If you think about how you would witness to somebody, you wouldn't necessarily bring the Holy Spirit into that, would you? Or even the doctrine of the Trinity. Not usually. Not usually. Kind of muddies the water, frankly. But it is important to understand. And it's one of the most basic doctrines that new believers actually learn. The difference. You, you can't read the scripture without seeing it. The Father, the Son, the Spirit. You, you can't really avoid it. You start a new believer and you say, you know, what's a, what's a book that's common to point a new, a new believer to? John. Very common. John's very common. They're all three there. They're all three there. Right away, they're there. So, it is important for us to understand this doctrine. There's, not, there's just not any question that's the case. So let's, let's break it, start to break it down. Okay, so first of all, we're going to talk about its affirmation. In other words, how it's affirmed in this statement, the unity of the three persons. So notice, here's the beginning of how, this is what we're going to look at the bullet points for, how it begins. In this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences, the Father, the Word, or Son, and the Holy Spirit, of one substance, power, and eternity, each having the divine essence, yet the essence undivided. Well, Scripture describes three three types of beings. I want to park on this for just a second, and maybe we're going to just do this in the next one, in the next bullet point. But God, men, and angels. This is what the Scriptures describe to us. God, men, and angels, okay? Notice then, men and angels are limited. They can exist in one place at one time. They only exist within one physical or metaphysical person and body, right? So angels, an angel does not have more than one body, metaphysical body, right? People do not have more than one body. You have one. Christ is in one body. Are you with me on this? He's in one body. 
we do not exist in multiple bodies, right? There is no example in creation that equates to God's trinity. Now, you could say, well, you know, it's like an egg, it's like a whatever, you know. And there's a very funny YouTube video you can watch about that where somebody's trying to hear Patrick explain what the trinity is. And um, they right away go to what some of the stuff we're going to be talking about, modalism and other things. But at any rate, uh, there, is no, there, there is no example in nature. I mean, that's the bottom line. In fact, they actually point that out. And in the end, the resolution of that little funny YouTube video, it, which is animated, by the way, is that um, he just explains basically what, it's, uh, what, the, what the core of our faith, of our doctrine of the Trinity is, and then they just accept it. <laughs> they don't need an example. They just accept what he says. At any rate, so there's no other, there's no other creature creation of any type that is like the Trinity. Are you with me on this? Now, I'm saying, I'm stopping here for a second to deal with aliens. Literally, I'm stopping here to deal with aliens. And we're not going to spend much time on this. But we are going to spend some time on it. And I'm going to tell you a couple of things. I'm going to give you a couple of noodle cookers. That's how we're going to end today. And the reason that I'm going to do that is because, if you haven't been paying attention, the government has all but totally admitted now that there has been UFOs for quite a long time, that some of them have crashed, that they have recovered them, and they have recovered what they are calling aliens. Now, if you haven't been watching, this is in the news. This is in the news. This is in primetime news. This is in primetime news. And in this past week, there was more revelations about this. Is it possible that these are truly aliens? That they're life forms from another place? Don't shake your heads no, because you're wrong. The reality is, is you don't know. You don't know. Has God told us everything in his word? No, he hasn't. He hasn't. Is it possible that there are aliens from some other place, some other beings that God created. It's possible. But understand that the rules that the scriptures tell us are still true. God's son came to earth and died for sinners. He did not go to another planet. He didn't have a do-over someplace else. He came here. He became human. He is now in a human body for eternity. The scriptures tell us this. Could there be some other race of beings that exist? It's possible. Are there other, are there other beings besides men? Yes. Angels. True? Angels. How do angels transport themselves? We kind of assume they just up here, right? Hmm. So what did Ezekiel see in the sky? What did he see? Look, here's the reality. And I think, Branch, you touched on this when you were covering the Old Testament survey on the book of Ezekiel. There is a whole lot of language in Ezekiel that we do not understand. We honestly don't know what he meant. We could come up with ideas and things that could be this, it could be that. You know, We just don't know. We just don't know. 
When Ezekiel saw a wheel in the sky, was it a flying object of some type? Maybe. Was it just some aberration of light? Maybe. Maybe. We don't know. So here's why I'm saying all this. You're like, wow, this is definitely taking a turn that I did not expect this morning. All right, here's why I'm saying this. Do not let this shake your faith. Do not let this shake your faith. This does not change God's word. It does not change who he is. It does not change what he did. It does not change what his plans are for you. Could it be that we're going to see some things that are not what we expected? It's very possible. Could it be that it's a, it's a ploy by Satan to actually draw people away from God? Very possible. Could it be these creatures are actually demons? Maybe. We don't know. We know that angels can appear as things that they're not. We know that. So, could we see aliens? Don't know. But we know what the government is admitting now. Roswell was real. There was some kind of an aircraft that no man knew about that they recovered pieces of. And that they have been hiding it. And now it's come out. And if you hadn't noticed, this is not just something that happened this week. They have been, maybe you didn't realize this, but one of those articles, one of those news stories that came out that they did it when nobody was paying attention during the middle of COVID was that they have indeed been chasing UFOs for years. Did you know that came out during COVID? It did. But that wasn't the big thing, was it? It was Trump. An insurrection. We've got to do something about this. Oh, by the way, we actually acknowledge that there has been UFOs for many years and we've been chasing them. And by the way, here's a few video clips so you can see what they look like. That came out in 2020. And they've consistently been releasing more and more information to say that this is true. Don't let this shake you. Don't let this shake you. There are things that are going to happen that we cannot explain. There are. Can anyone explain the clouds rolling back? Or a Trump that the entire world will hear announcing Christ's return? You can't explain that, can you? You can't. How will it look before that? We don't know. We don't know. Don't get caught up in the idea that if if it's something that we didn't expect, that somehow that invalidates your faith. It doesn't. It doesn't. God's word is really clear that we do not need to know everything. Here's what we do know. He's on the throne. He reigns. And whatever happens is his will. It's his will. And whoever or whatever these things are, they're not God. God doesn't have to fly in a spacecraft. He is everywhere. He knows everything. Doesn't need transportation. Right? So don't get caught up in that. Don't worry about that. Interesting? Yeah. But don't get caught up in that and let it stray, make you stray from the faith. 
we'll pick back up next week, continuing to talk about the unity of the three persons. Let's close in a word of prayer.